welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Marin Hesla. Marin has worked in campaigns at the top level of democratic institutions like Emily's List, worked as a pollster, and now is a partner at the direct mail firm of Mission Control. Marin has been involved in several high-profile wins, most recently playing a key role in helping Democrats breakthrough in the Georgia Senate runoffs and take control of the Senate. Marin is as smart as anyone in the industry, and I'm thrilled to talk to her today. Marin Hesla, tell me about how you grew up. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. My dad was a professor at Emory University. My mom was a church organist. I had a younger brother and grew up there in the you know late 60s, early 70s. Did you grow up in a political family? Was politics the family business? I certainly remember, again, dad was a university professor. I remember my earliest political memories are going on anti-Vietnam marches. So as a family, we would go and, you know, my brother and I would, would wave signs. Um, and this is, is this in the city of Atlanta? Or are you, are you going to D.C. Yeah, to do in, this? In the city of Atlanta. Um, there, there were, uh, again, we're talking... 68, 69, 70. And so there were protest marches and my family was a part of those. What are the politics of Georgia like? We know the politics of Georgia today, a state in flux. The, the microscope has been on Georgia uh, very closely uh, here recently, but talk a bit about the politics of Georgia uh, or, or even the politics of Atlanta within the, the, the politics of Georgia as you were coming of age and, and getting interested in politics and what's going on around you. You know, my parents were both Minnesotans and when my dad was searching around for a university spot, the one commitment he and mom had made was not to go south of the Mason-Dixon line. And then lo and behold, they got their offer from Emory University, and that's where they ended up, and that's where I was raised. I remember them being just horrified by Lester Maddox, the SEG governor of Georgia, uh, being horrified by the politics of George Wallace. Like I said, they were not lefty, although my dad got more lefty as he got older, but sort of came down there as apolitical Minnesota DFLers. And then suddenly there they were in the South, kind of at the height of the civil rights movement. And so that was fairly formative to me. A Hubert Humphrey Democrat in the land of Lester Maddox. Exactly. Exactly. What about Atlanta specifically? Today, we think of Atlanta's very progressive. Atlanta at one point adopted the motto of the city, too busy to hate in the 60s, 70s. That's probably Pollyannish way to think about even Atlanta within the state of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, I was a child of the suburbs. We lived in DeKalb County. You know, Atlanta itself felt as a kid, to me, more removed than it actually was. I think it's fascinating that Georgia has had some of the biggest names in politics. You are, Maybe Massachusetts could rival it, but you think about the fact that you had Andrew Young, you had John Lewis, you had Julian Bond, all bigger than life people who were on the local news on a regular basis. Take that right up till January 5th, when Georgia was the state that changed the direction of this country. So it's a great state to have as your home state if you are somebody who's in politics. And it's easy to see how Georgia could could shape that in me. 
Yeah. And so who were some of the dominant political figures, maybe the lo- at the local scene or even nationally? You mentioned Lester Maddox in a, as a negative uh, figure, and, and Maddox, despite being out of office, hovered over Georgia politics, uh, even when he was out of office, in a lot of ways, the specter of, of Lester Maddox hanging over the state. But who, were, who was somebody that inspired you? Was there a, a candidate or an elected official or a movement that inspired you as you were coming of age and getting more um, I'll bring it to very local politics, and this is, was my first job in politics. I left Georgia, went to Vassar College in New York, and after two years in college, thought, wow, this is so highbrow. 18th century literature actually has nothing to do with what's going on. I was sort of disillusioned with higher education. So I packed up my bags, went back to Atlanta, and a family friend you know, needed a job, and a family friend said, well, Manuel Maloof is running to be the at-large county commissioner. I can help you get an interview with him. And I interviewed with him and ended up as his office manager, jack of all trades. You know, it's a small, small race. Pay me 150 bucks a week cash. That was, that was what I earned. And instantly fell in love with campaigning and the pace of it and the people contact of it and the mission of it. And Manuel himself was just a larger than life figure. Uh, He was Lebanese, had fought in World War II, came back and with no more than a high school education started what is to this day, one of the most storied bars in Atlanta, Manuel's Tavern. Uh, He had nine kids, eight boys and a girl, was running as a small business owner for the at-large county commission seat and being involved in that campaign and working for Manuel, who was just a gruff, straight-talking, insanely smart, all about paving the potholes kind of guy. That was what got me hooked on politics more than anything else. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, Manuel's Tavern still still going strong in Atlanta today in a, a spot. Anybody uh, interested in politics, it's a, a, a history just walking into Manuel's Tavern of, of pictures on the walls of, of politicians who've made who've made stops there. So you get the bug working on this local race. So uh, what happens after that? Manuel's race was all about the primary. The primary was over in August. Um, I was 20 and I, the, the, there was still a general election. It wasn't going to be very competitive, but there was still a general. And so it felt unfinished to me. And I told Manuel, um, I'm going to stay here and work on your race until, until the general. And he said, kid, you got to go back to college. I was like, no, really, I'm, I'm fine. I would rather do this. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I can't make you go back to college, but I'm not going to let you work on my campaign. What do you mean? He said, you got to go back to college. And if you're not going to do that, you're not going to work for me. To his endless credit, I am will always be grateful to him for having basically kicked me back to college, made sure that I got my degree. And I've seen all sorts of folks who thought they were taking off a semester and ended up never getting their degree because they got sucked into politics. Um, I went back to college, came back. I did work in his next race, which this time was for county CEO. Um, that was in 82. And after having done that and then doing a, a short series of odd jobs, I got scooped up by the Mondale campaign in Georgia. Same thing. They needed just sort of competent people. It's one of the things that you learn is that if you are willing to work endlessly long hours, you write well, 
you are generally competent, you will find your way to the next campaign. Yeah, well, so, let, me, let me interject there before we get into Monday. One thing I should have mentioned or should have asked about is growing up in Georgia in the you having these Georgia roots in the uh, in the 70s through the early 80s. Uh, one name we didn't mention was Jimmy Carter. What was it like having an interest in politics, being a Georgian at a time when Jimmy Carter is not just that Jimmy Carter's in the White House, but the people around you mentioned Andrew Young, ambassador to the U.N. A lot of the people uh, around Jimmy Carter, and he was even criticized for it, uh, uh, frankly, were, were Georgians he brought with him to Washington. What was what was your feel at the time? What did it feel like at the time as a young person getting interested in politics and having somebody from your own state uh, in the White House? You know, I think all of Georgia at first was so insanely proud. It was just amazing that a Georgia governor had gotten elected president of the United States. And again, I talk about Georgia being a great place. So many just regular, normal Georgians went up to Iowa to be part of the peanut brigade, you know, to go door to door. I didn't. But when I came back and got more involved in Georgia, that that was just a constant thread through the people was the people who had been involved in his campaign in Iowa. So just regular people in the state of Georgia. It was, I will say, then accompanied by as the Carter presidency became a less respected presidency, just the sense of embarrassment, like, oh, my God, really, Jimmy, you know, are you going after gigantic water bunny? If you remember that incident when he was attacked by a rabbit in a canoe, the embarrassment of the the situation with the American embassy in Iran. And so it was sort of a roller coaster. And I was just young enough not to have a firmly held opinion. I think I today would look back and defend much of the Carter presidency as being really one of the better presidencies we have had. But at the time, public opinion turned on him. And so I just hung my head. You find yourself at the start of the 84 campaign working for in Georgia for Jimmy Carter's uh, vice president, Walter Mondale. Pick it up at that point. It was a ton of fun. It was a we had a office in Midtown in a rundown hotel. Um, we discovered with our phone banks that um, women who were working the streets would come in and volunteer and then use the phones to you know, set up their next job. We had this is early on, but I remember that Halloween was there was a gay pride parade and something that, again, my relatively sheltered little southern suburban girl just hadn't seen much of. And it was very vibrant. We also discovered Georgia was the last southern state to be dropped from the targeting. It turned out that that the person running the phone bank had made a mistake in calculating our phone IDs. And it was was back in an age where actually the phone IDs helped determine which states got the targeting. Um, Our phone IDs were being reported as far better than they actually were. And so uh, poor Jim Quackenbush kept Georgia on the list as a target state for far longer than it deserved to be. And what was your role? What was your, what was your role in this campaign? What would your day to day look like? I was once again the um, the manager referred to me as a utility infielder, 
It was writing whatever needed to be written. It was finding, you know, training volunteers. It was driving around the state, dropping off materials for the different state satellite offices. Guy named Clay Henderson was a state director. He's a lawyer out of Florida. A guy whose name is escaping me, but who had a very successful career as a journalist afterwards, was the deputy director. And it was just, it's astonishing how much less professional it was than operations now. Much looser, much more about retail politics, um, about the local elected officials and endorsements, um, and certainly not the level of targeting or sophistication that you see today. There is no President Mondale lost very decisively, of course. So you're you're out of a job on, in early November. How are you thinking about your career at that point? How are you looking forward? I talk about my career and it sounds like I moved from one campaign to the other. In between, there were periods where I was a waitress. There were periods where I was a bartender. I worked for temp agencies. I'm still a great typist and I could always go in and earn enough money to pay the rent by signing up with a temp agency and working for six weeks and getting the next gig. It's an unfortunate fact of politics that it is better suited for people with rich parents, unless you are somebody who is really willing to endure the uncertainty that comes with campaigns and confident enough that you can always pick up money literally by waiting tables. I worked at Denny's, I worked at IHOP, I wasn't good enough to be at high scale restaurants. So I was, I worked the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. till 6 a.m. at the Dunkin' Dine. Very timely advice here. We're at the beginning of early 2021, the beginning of a cycle where so many people now after November, uh, uh, after the end of the year, find themselves in this holding pattern and you become hostage to the uh, the campaign cycle in a way that, that that's you know, pretty unusual. So, and we don't have to sort of hit all the campaigns, but how do you find yourself go from uh, unemployed in Georgia, waiting tables in Georgia to not too long after that, you find yourself uh, in in uh, DC. Uh, so so get, just give us a little bit of the trajectory at that point. I went from the Mondale campaign to being the political director for the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, I built the first statewide voter file. Um, Now we all take voter files for granted, but at the time, Georgia has 159 counties, all of which kept their own voter files. And to build a statewide file, some of them, the big counties in Metro Atlanta, like DeKalb and Fulton, had an electronic file that you could buy and merge. But I think it was Quitman County literally kept their voters on three by five cards in an actual recipe Mm. box that was used to hold recipes. So if you went to vote in Quitman County, which is a couple thousand people, like they would go to the W's, pull out white and find your name there, hand mark on them there that you had voted in November of 80. Uh, And so I drove down to Quitman County and put all those three by five cards on a Xerox machine, made copies literally of every card brought them back up to Atlanta where somebody entered them in by hand. Did a well good enough job at that that I went from there to being the Southern Regional Director for the DNC, went back to Georgia to manage Ben Jones' campaign when Ben Jones had played Cooter on the Dukes of Hazard, And he was recruited to run against the aptly named Pat Swindle, who was caught on tape laundering money. See, Georgia just has the best stories. 
Ben went on to win and be a member of Congress for two terms. Well, let's let's pause there. I mean, he's a very colorful character, not just on television, I believe, but a pretty colorful in real life. What was your uh, what was it like being around Ben Jones, Cooter from the Dukes of Hazard? Um, ben was great. I was before I'd gotten down there to manage the race. He called me because this was the time when everybody was asking politicians, "Have you ever used marijuana?" You know, this was the the no notorious, um, but I didn't inhale comment. And he was asking me for my advice. What should he say when? And he was sure it was when, not if. He was asked if he had ever used marijuana. And I said, "Well." what's what's the story? Have you ever used marijuana? And he said, I think I've used it three times. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's not much. That's something that we can talk about as experimentation. And he said, first time was from about 64 to 69. And then there was a period from, I'd say, 73 to 75. And then, yeah, probably 86. More than so, experimentation. Yeah, that was Ben. He would be the first to tell you that he had his line was more skeletons in the closet than the Smithsonian. He was a guy who had had a real problem with drugs and alcohol as an actor and had come through on the other side. You know, and again, in, in a post-Trump era, all of the complaints against him look downright quaint. But Ben was great. He, he kept the staff entertained. He was always upbeat. He has since become a far more Confederate-oriented individual, but at the time, he was you know, a very mainstream Southern Democrat. At one point in the House in that era, I think you had Ben Jones, Cooter from the Dukes of Hazard, and you had Gopher yep. Fred Grandy from the Love Boat. Um, yep, from Iowa. Uh, uh, in, uh, from Iowa at the same at the same time. So, so you successfully manage a, a difficult race. What does your uh, path look like after that? Do you do you follow him to D.C.? I did not. I went to the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee as their national, the, they're structured differently, but the title at the time was the national field director. Rahm Emanuel was the um, executive, ha, had been the executive director. He was succeeded by Doug Sosnick. Uh, Doug went on to work in Clinton's White House. Rahm as, you know, and Rahm had been my desk when I was running Ben's race. Rahm obviously has gone on to big things and Doug went on to great big things. And it was great to have had an opportunity to work with both of those guys. And is there a race in that era? You mentioned as, as a field director at the DCCC in that era, was there a race or two that you became more emotionally invested in that you felt like maybe the field activities or some of the work you did, you know, helped make a difference? The race that I remember um, was one that it ended up breaking my heart. Jim Moran got elected, and then Jim Moran went on to vote for the Clinton impeachment. Um, and I just felt so betrayed by that. People these days think of field, and so much of it is is digital and online based. Can you just give a, a primer on what the best practices for field work for political races, congressional races? What what did what did uh, what did a field plan look like? Again, it's it's, it's going to sound so funny. You, you had to literally cut turf. You got a map of all of the precincts in your congressional district, and you would physically cut out, you know, precinct 123. And you would look at 123 and you would say, okay, there are too many doors for one team to knock on, but probably two people, two teams of two 
could each cover the whole precinct in four hours. And then you would take a yellow highlighter and you would highlight the Western end of the district, an orange highlighter and hi uh, highlight the, the other end of the district. And you would hand your canvassers those maps and you would have a voter file that had been printed out on paper in street address order. And so you pulled all of the streets that went with a yellow highlight and the other streets that went the orange highlight and you made them into packets. And it's so wildly different compared to people going out with you know, something on their phones that has, oh, and a bare minimum amount of targeting. Like, like the targeting was these are voters, you know, not much more than, okay, these are the base precincts. These are the persuadable precincts. These are the Republican precincts. Targeting at, a more, at an individual level just didn't exist at the time. How did working at the field director, working in field, working in data, putting together voter files, did that inform how you found yourself in the polling industry for a time? Yeah, I've always, I, I went from the DCCC to a one cycle working as a media consultant with a Texas-based firm called Rindy McKinnon um, and went very quickly from there to working with Diane Feldman, you know, one of the best pollsters ever in the industry, retired now, but Clearly, the, the person that I would, had I ever run for office, she would have been the person that I would want to be my pollster because I just, with all deference to you, Zach, a terrific pollster at a great firm, but uh, Diane was just incredibly good for all sorts of reasons. But what I learned about the difference, I thought I'd be good in media because I'm a good writer, because I like words, because I thought, okay, TV is about words. Uh, what I learned was that TV is, is not at all about words. It's about thinking visually. I am not a very good visual thinker. I am good at words and I'm good at analysis. Uh, I'm a logical person. And actually polling, I thought I couldn't be a pollster because I'm not that good at numbers. Polling isn't really about numbers. I do think that's an important point. I mean, there, there's this there's this perception, perhaps, that every person at a polling firm is an MIT math whiz. And, and many, many folks, obviously, there's a, a basic familiarity you need to have with numbers and be good with numbers, but you don't need to necessarily be a, um, a statistical whiz the day you walk in the door. It's really about understanding the number, the story that the numbers are trying to tell you, right? Like you sit there and you say, okay, let's see how non-college educated women feel about the direction of the country and what are the issues that matter to them and then how do they feel and you get this sort of narrative that pops out that the numbers are trying to tell you they're full of anxiety they feel unsettled they're concerned about their kids none of that is actually questions in the poll but you can read the numbers and the numbers tell you that story Talk a bit more about Diane Feldman, as you mentioned, uh, re you know, retired recently, I believe living in the Jackson, Mississippi area, actually where an area where I, I grew up. But you mentioned, you know, thinking so highly of her, one of the highly esteemed pollsters in the field. But talk a bit about Diane Feldman and, and what you learned from her and what made her special for you. She understood what you understand and what seems like it should be basic, but, but doesn't always happen, which is that her job was to figure out the path to 50% plus one. And if your job is to figure out 50% plus one, then starting with when you write a survey, you write a survey with a theory of the case in mind. If all of your surveys are following the same set of batteries, you're not thinking enough about what the contours of the race are. 
I know, Zach, that you said in there and you say, okay, are we going to be attacked? Is this going to be an all positive race? Are there multiple candidates? How does that all play out? You have never given me a, a survey that was 30 minutes long and you said, okay, here are the options, but we have to cut out 15 minutes of it. You wouldn't do that because you know, walking in what you think are the questions that we need answered and you structure a survey to answer those questions. That is what I learned from Diane. She was also didn't take corporate work if she thought it would have any kind of influence or appear to have any kind of conflict of interest. Extraordinary integrity and was just really taught me how to think analytically about a race. And was there a race or two in that era when you were in the in the pollster seat? Um, either either with Diane Feldman or, or on your own that um, stands out to you as maybe one you learned something for, or again, just became maybe more emotionally invested in than some of the others? She was Tammy Baldwin's pollster in her first congressional race. And I was like third fiddle on it, but it really was a race where the DCCC at the time thought Tammy would be a terrible candidate. Their attitude was this will be a democratic seat unless we make the terrible mistake of nominating a lesbian woman. And they were- I believe it was, and it was an open Republican seat, right? Actually been held by a Republican, I believe. Yep. And they were- just convinced there was, I I couldn't even tell you who, there was a plethora of uh, standard issue white guy candidates, all of whom they aggressively preferred. And I was just down to my toes rooting for Tammy, who did through, you know, just extraordinary work and especially turning out students at the University of Wisconsin, just all sorts of elbow grease and smart thinking went into that race and uh, and she won. And look, I, I should be clear, that was the DCCC of the time. They are not always now standing out for standard issue white guys, but and, that and, was very much the mindset at the time. And one of the one of the, the, the groups that has helped level the playing field some uh, is Emily's List, where you find yourself at, I believe, pretty soon after that. Can you talk about your path toward Emily's List? did three cycles with Diane and then just wanted to take some time off of politics. I consulted for nonprofits. Um, I had young kids at the time and for any woman in politics, sort of the intersection of being a mom and being a, a professional is very intertwined. And just, it was a period when I thought it would be a lot easier if I was not working 18 hour days. A friend sent me the job listing for the, position at Emily's List, which, you know, as you know, is the organization that helps to elect pro-choice Democratic women. And I'm sorry, and this is maybe mid-2000s, roughly? Yeah, uh, 2004 was my first year then. It is hard to believe how transformed the landscape is for women from 2004 to 2021. But at the time, you know, it really was working on behalf of a handful of women who were running for offices, nowhere near the number of candidates that you have today. But the position was for running their independent expenditure program. And I thought, okay, that sounds like fun. And I literally sent my resume in to a job posting the way that nobody gets jobs anymore, just with a random resume uh, sent in. And I was fortunate in that the woman who was screening the resumes over there uh, was Amy Green, 
who had been Congressman Jerry Nadler's chief of staff. Jerry Nadler was a Diane Feldman client, and I had worked with Amy when I was at Diane's, and Amy said, oh my gosh, it's Martin from Diane Feldman's shop. She would be great here. And she pulled my resume out of the stack. As much as nobody ever gets a job by sending in their resume, I got a job by sending in my resume. You know, can you talk about what the day-to-day looks like when you're on the independent expenditure side at a group like Emily's List? Yeah, very different from the campaign side. With an independent expenditure, first of all, your number one job is not to do to do no harm. We have progressed in the world of independent expenditures to a point where now there are lots of legal ways for a campaign to say, hey, here the, you know, as long as you say it publicly, private communication is illegal, but public communication, if you put out on your website and say, I would like voters to know this about me, We had come much less far on that front back in 2004. So it really was kind of looking at, you would build a team, a pollster, a a male consultant, a media consultant. You would take a look and say, okay, where does the race stand? And then you would think, what is something that we can do that for sure will help the campaign, that absolutely has no possibility of hurting them? And ideally something where we can say, okay, we're taking this off your plate. So if it is a statewide race in Wisconsin, 10% of the Wisconsin media market is in um, Minneapolis, is in the Minneapolis media market, an insanely expensive media market. You know, what if we say to the statewide candidate, we're going to send 15 pieces of mail to people in the Minnesota media market. Now, you don't have to do that. We're going to do it and we're going to do it on your core message. And you get to focus all of your attention on Wisconsin media markets. So it's things like that. What is the one thing that we could do that we can signal, that we can do well, that we can take off the campaign's plate? Is there a race or two in that era? You mentioned you were there three cycles, I believe. Is there a race or two that uh, maybe was a signature race for you? This is not quite about a campaign, but more about something that, that we worked on in 2006. Republicans were doing a better job than Democrats in the very early field of modeling. We weren't even calling it modeling then. It was psychographic profiles. And the Republicans were crowing about the fact that that they could slice and dice the electorate into all of these different, you know, really cutely named segments and that they were talking to them. And Democrats were like, "Um, no, we're still just talking about base voters and base Republican voters and swing voters. That's that's as far as we have divided the electorate. And Ellen Malcolm was the president of Emily's List and just a visionary woman. Such a important figure in democratic politics, both for founding Emily's List, but while she was there, always being open to finding and understanding new techniques. So In the Michigan governor's race, when we were electing Jennifer Granholm, we hired Jeff Guerin's firm and asked them, can we do what the Republicans are doing? To do a big statewide, large sample survey, asking lots of different questions, not just about politics, but about lifestyle, and to start segmenting the electorate. Um, That was the year that Mike Podhorzer called uh, a couple of us, me and and Hal Malchow, who was with a direct mail firm at the time, just a handful of people and said, 
hey, we're all interested in this thing called modeling. Let's get together once a week and talk about it. Grew into what is now the Analyst Institute, which really is an organization that helps the progressive side delve into what is the intersection between analytics and winning elections. <laughs> Having segmented the Michigan electorate into 23 different types, it turned out that what they cared about across every single segment was jobs and the economy. And I was like, oh my God, we did all this work and we're just going to do a jobs and the economy message to everybody. But you know, having done this with the hope of doing this super narrow cast messaging, you then looked and in an, a situation as you had that year where all that anybody cared about was jobs, um, the narrow casting felt at the time like it was had not been as instrumental to success as we had wanted it to be. What it was instrumental to was being one of the very first large-scale modeling programs in the Democratic Party. People know what Emily's List does. You uh, described their uh, their mission, of course, electing pro-choice Democratic women. Uh, you were there for several years, multiple cycles. What do you know about Emily's List? You know, what have you seen about Emily's List? Maybe that is under underappreciated, or people just would not be aware of unless they had been uh, within the organization and seen it up close, like you. What people don't appreciate about Emily's List, what a cauldron of women's talent it is. Everybody is aware of how many women they have helped to elect, of the careers that they have started, about the women whose campaigns they have funded, about the people who would never have had a shot were it not for Emily's List believing in them and investing in their campaigns early on. What is far less appreciated is that if you look across the women in the Democratic Party, how many of them were interns or staffers for one cycle or for four cycles. There are not that many women in media firms, but Ann Liston and Martha McKenna are, are both Emily's List alums. Karen White, who is the, you know, has been the deputy executive director at the National Education Association. You go to almost any consulting firm or major progressive player and all of them have at least one woman there who cut her teeth at Emily's list. Who were some of the folks at you know that you were dealing with, or maybe were even junior to you at that point, who are uh, influential? Uh, well, today. you know, Ellen Ellen Moran was the executive director and went on to be the communications director at the White House, and you know, and then on the junior level, Allison Jaslow who was an intern. Um, and went from being an intern at Emily's List to doing two tours of duty in Iraq um, as an ROTC scholar, came back and eventually became the executive director of the DCCC. I mean, it is humbling when your intern becomes the executive director of the DCCC. You wrap up three cycles at Emily's List. I'm sure you had plenty of potential options uh, out there. Stay in the Emily's List world, party committees, Hill work, start your own consulting firm, you know, no shortage of options. Uh, before talking about sort of where you landed and what you decided to do uh, and where you decided to do it, can you talk about how you were thinking about what you wanted to do next in your career at that point? Yeah, um, I did not want to start my own firm. The truth is I am not an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I am ter- I, I, I am way too risk averse. 
to say, oh yeah, uh, I am gonna put everything I have out here and be confident in my ability to bring in clients. Um, I wanted to join a firm. Well, we did a bunch of direct mail and I worked with a number of very talented mail firms, but the firm, um, and I talked to a couple of them, a couple of them had reached out to me to say, would I be interested in working with them? The firm that I had always worked with the most because their creativity was just such a delight was Mission Control. And as I said, other firms worked out, reached out to me and Ed Peavy at Mission Control did not reach out to me. And I thought, damn it, that is the firm that I would most like to work with. And coincidentally, in 2009, um, a number of us went on an APAC trip to Israel. We did this while well, I was at Emily's List, but thinking about leaving, Ed and I were on the same APAC trip. And that was 10 days of traveling around Israel with him and other consultants, but gave me a chance to get to know him, not just as a consultant, but as a person. So I came back from that and thought and said, yeah, we're very compatible. That's That would be a good place for me to work. And he didn't seem to be reaching out to me. So I finally sat down and it took me like three hours to write an email, you know, a four sentence email and I was trying to say, okay, so if he has zero interest, I don't want this to be awkward. It was, it was a very middle school, I like you, do you like me, check box if yes kind of, of email. So anxious that it wouldn't put him in a bind where if it just didn't work with him, I didn't want him to feel like, oh, now I've made an enemy forever. So I sent it and Ed, as you know, responds to all emails within sort of one to two minutes of getting them. And the hours tick by and it's overnight. And I'm like, crap, he really has zero interest in trying to figure out how he can write back. Hey, it just doesn't work out with our plans right now. Sorry. Um, but instead it was right after the election and he was biking in Spain. And so on a completely different timetable and with less access than usual to email. And the next day he did write back and say, wow, that's a great idea. I should have thought of it myself. And four weeks later, I was at the firm. Talk a bit about the strategic role that mail, that direct mail plays in campaigns. People obviously know what television ads are, polling people, see public polls out there. People probably have a sense of what that is. But direct mail is is, is probably less understood, even by people who are uh, relatively savvy about politics. Can you talk about the strategic uh, role that direct mail should play, does play in campaigns? Sure. TV moves the big numbers. Yeah. And you and I have been on races together where I have said, do your TV budget. That's what you need to do. Where you have fully funded your TV budget, if, if you are in that situation, the role that mail can play is one, it is the most targetable medium, um, even more so than digital. Digital still is a fairly broad brushstroke. Mail goes into a mailbox. From our earlier conversation about modeling, we've gotten more and more sophisticated about finding people on a voter file who are persuadable, who need mobilization, who have specific ideas about specific issues. And so mail fills in around the edges and not as a broad brush medium usually, although there are circumstances where it is. But if you're talking about a big competitive race, mail is where you can talk almost one-on-one -on -one to individual voters about issues. So there is the targeted nature of mail that lets you really speak to individual issues or concerns or geographies or demographics. 
there is the fill in the hole. I use the Wisconsin example. You know, if you are in a district where a large percentage of is covered by one media market, but you have a sliver that isn't, or a part that isn't in an unusefully expensive market, mail can fill in in those circumstances. You have a message that's an important message, but that you don't want broadcast on TV. Uh, and the standard example of that is supporting abortion rights. You know, is that something that in some districts is, is not a message that is well suited to broadcast, but it is a message that will move certain voters. You can use mail under those circumstances. Yeah, I'm sure you get this from people a lot. Just swat it down here. But the idea, oh, well, nobody reads their mail. People just throw it away. You know, nobody really reads it. So why spend money on it? Why worry about mail when people just uh, throw it away? What is, what, is the, what is the right answer to that question? Um, mail is probably the most tested medium out there because it is so targeted and because the testing is really easy to do, comparatively speaking. And we are in an era of politics where you're seeing a lot more rigorous testing and experimentation done. All of the experimentation will show that, yes, you can move votes. Again, it doesn't move numbers the way TV moves numbers. And I would never say that it does. But you can generate you know, 3% movement among a targeted group with the right message. Does everybody read it? No, just as not everybody sees TV because you can mute or fast forward or you're only watching on you know, premium channels. So no, not everybody sees TV and not everybody reads their mail. But within the universe, who does look at it and looking at it is seven seconds. Like we, the most common criticism of a piece of mail when it gets circulated within the firm for review is, cut more words. We've got seven seconds. We've got the amount of time it takes you to walk from your mailbox to your recycling bin. And the challenge for mail is how do you put together a headline and a visual that conveys a message in seven seconds? And it's a medium of repetition. Generally, the bigger font, the better. But besides something very elementary like that, do you have design thoughts or have you seen things over the years that help things jump off the page? What, what, are your, what is your gut on how to, uh, how to make sure that in that seven seconds that people are actually remembering of what, um, what they're seeing? High contrast is important. Consistency of messaging is the most important. If there is a mistake that you see made in mail plans, it is that somebody will see, okay, the top three issues are crime and education and healthcare. So I'm going to do one crime piece and one education piece and one healthcare piece. That is just throwing away money. You really have to have the discipline to say, I need to convey one thing. And it could be in any given campaign that you've got four different audiences, each of whom needs something different. But for that audience, you have to have the discipline to understand what's the one thing that I want this person thinking when they walk into the polling place or when they return their vote by mail ballot, you know, and walking back from that, how do I say that seven different ways in the next couple of weeks, but so consistently that they can only have that one message in their, in their head. And you mentioned that in the, as recently as the nineties or the early two thousands, there wasn't terribly sophisticated targeting on either side, and maybe Democrats were a little slower uh, than Republicans in some ways. But can you talk about some of the levels of sophistication that folks like you and male consultants are able to use? 
You use a candidate support model, which will help you find out the people who are most likely to support your candidate and most likely to support your opponent. You can combine that candidate support model with how likely they are to vote. So you know who are the people who are most likely to support your candidate, but are also inconsistent voters who's, who are going to need additional information and reminders that election day is coming up. You and I you know, care passionately about election day and know right now when election day is in 2022. Most people don't. Most people don't know that the general election is in November. And so spending the time just to say, hey, the election is coming up, you need to go vote to somebody who is a supporter of your candidate, but an inconsistent voter is a, one of the key uses of mail. We are doing getting much better at finding persuadable voters. Um, you have these people who are in the middle on the candidate support score, and they aren't necessarily persuadable. They are simply people that we don't have enough information about. So finding the people in the middle who actually are persuadable, and even understanding that persuasion happens up and down the candidate support score. So if you've got a candidate support score of 80, that means 80% of the people with that score are likely to support your candidate and 20% are likely to support your opponent. But even there at that 80, there are people who could be persuaded to vote for your candidate. And so figuring out how do you find the persuadable voters, whether they are Dem, you know, whether they are classified as Dem or classified as Republicans or classified as independents, finding the persuadable voters up and down the, the score is something that we as a party have gotten better at. There are even scores that try to gauge how likely people are to read and digest mail. Is that is that yep. part of it as well? Absolutely. Readability, uh, mail readability scores are important, as are TV viewing scores. So you can find people who score low on likely TV viewership and high on likely mail viewership and create a universe of people who need your core message, the one that you're delivering on TV, because you've identified people who are less likely to watch TV and more likely to read mail. There are education scores. You've heard um, so much about non-college educated voters, and mail is one of the better ways to, to reach them. You've been a partner at Mission Control now for several cycles. I know very recently you were, you were an instrumental part, your firm, and you were an instrumental part uh, flipping seats in Georgia. But is there a race or two uh, that you're it's in your role at Mission Control uh, that you've been in uh, involved in that um, is, a, is a really good use of the example of the effectiveness of mail? Sherrod Brown is just the most amazing United States Senator. And I'm all you know, just so honored that we've been a part of his team because he is such a genuinely good guy. Um, and if you're not following his wife, Connie Schultz on Twitter, you should be, she is the best. And, and that was a race where in the last cycle, there was some narrow path. There were people who we were identified as being both Trump supporters and Sherrod Brown supporters. Uh, and so that was a case where we did mail talking about the common ground that Trump and Brown had on trade policy. Not a TV message, a group that was identified through very careful modeling, but I care about Sherrod because he's so great and not because of, of those pieces of, of mail. Well, and certainly take a victory lap about, uh, the, about the Georgia race that you just were a part of. Always happy to take a John Ossoff victory lap. Ed and I in 
February of 2017, met with John. And we walked in there thinking, well, we are now going to see who the first sacrificial lamb of the post-Trump era is. This is going to be a race that goes nowhere. And we walked out and said, wow, that guy is amazing. And uh, he's not going to win, but boy, he's terrific. And that special election went on and you started to see the path. You saw, as you well know, Zach, what it was going to take to win that election. And in the first round where there were, what was it, 16 candidates on the ballot, he got 48% of the vote. And the first time we're 48%, you know, and the next closest Karen Handel got, I'm, I'm going to say 12 in or 13. In the teens, yeah. Yeah, in the teens. You know, and it felt like a defeat, you know, which, because we really thought there was a path to 50. He carried the hopes and dreams of the resistance on his young, untested shoulders. And I will always have so much respect for him because in the most intense media scrutiny imaginable, just hard to describe how much press attention there was on that race. He never made a mistake. He never had a basket of deplorable moments or uh, he was just so aware of how many people were counting on him to win and so respectful of that and so determined never to make a mistake on the trail. Just the most disciplined candidate I've ever worked with. And we came up short and the punditry just launched on him in one of the most unfair ways I've ever seen. Nothing has been more redemptive than watching him come back win a contested three-way primary in the first round, you know, this time on the other end of that 50% divide that you have to hit in Georgia in order to avoid a runoff. And then right up till January 5th. Yeah, I mean, we're not just winning the seat, but also uh, instrumental, of course, in pushing the changing control of the Senate. Marn, what, um, you know, as, as, a, as a white guy in the business, what, what do I probably not appreciate about some of the difficulties that women face, continue to face? Maybe it's better. You mentioned Emily's List being so influential in not just electing women, but, but helping elevate the careers of women operatives. But what, what, what is still out there? What difficulties uh, are out there for women working in politics? In politics and in all spheres of public life, I think that what you all, what the dominant pattern is that women are the primary caregivers and primary caregivers of their own children, primary giver, caregivers of aging parents. Certainly, the conversation among women consultants who have children is always it is so hard. It is so hard to be a good mom and to do right by your job, which isn't to say that guys aren't out there also. Um, sure, all, all the normal caveats, but but women, it, it, it falls harder disproportionately yeah. on women, absolutely. It does. And so there is just more juggling that happens. I took a couple of years off and was really fortunate that I got back on. It is hard to take a couple of years off. Yeah, I'm sure you saw the story in the, the post Um the number of women who have stepped out of the workforce during the pandemic, largely because it's impossible to be a full-time homeschool teacher 
and hold down a job. And when the juggling has happened, it tends to be the women who take a step back rather than the men. So what I would tell all guys is the women who have children who are working in this industry are working harder every single day than the men who have children are working. And so, and what is your advice to women in those situations about how to, how to try to make this work? Cut yourself all the slack in the world when you can. It's okay if the socks aren't paired when you put them in the sock drawer. Everybody is capable of fishing out two socks that match. And if they aren't, it's okay if their socks don't match. The women who are consultants in both parties are high achieving, ambitious people who care a lot about the work that they do. You get into this because you grew up as the child of Minnesotans in a still segregated South and you saw that politics was a way to make the world better. So you want to do your best at that. And you're the kind of person who only happy when they are doing everything well. And if you are trying to do everything well and you have young kids at home and you have a career in a competitive industry, if you don't find places to let things slide, you won't make it. Is there other advice that you would give to people early in their career, people kicking the tires on a career in politics. What advice do you give to those people? If you're trying to get a start in politics, the best advice that I can give you is work hard, be cheerful, do everything that is asked of you, be a team player. It is so much more, you know, I've, I've done endless as have you, you know, where you go and you speak to groups and you know, and people do trainings. And so they've learned all of the technical things. They understand the best practices on budgeting and they understand you know, exactly how to set up a reporting system and field. You can know all that technical stuff. But at the end of the day, if you aren't somebody that people like being around, if you aren't a cheerful person, if you're not an optimistic person, if you aren't an upbeat person, if you aren't willing to work harder than everybody else around you, then your technical skills won't matter. Uh, this is a job where you're spending so many hours every day with your team. Prima donnas are just not worth the time. Yeah. And so a couple questions specifically about you, Maren. Uh, this is something I borrowed from the economist Tyler Cowen. Uh, but to paraphrase him, he might ask about the Maren Hessler production function, meaning there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who work hard. But what is unique? What is different about you that you think you've been able to be uh, so successful uh, working uh, in the political industry? I have had a lot of, of great support from people, many of whom we've been talking about from Karen White, who is at Ellie's List and is now at the NEA, from Ellen Malcolm, who just gave me so many opportunities to shine, um, whether it was at the Ellie's List conferences and just had so much confidence in me. Uh, Diane Feldman, who, uh, again, was the kind of person who always let you shine, who would let you be the one to present the report. Ed Peavy at Mission Control, who has been endlessly generous in giving me opportunities and support. Part of what has made me shine is that I've been really lucky in who I knew and, and who came along. And I try to pay it back and probably don't do a good enough job on that more than anything else. That's what I would say the secret has been for me. 
uh, listen on a recommendation. It doesn't have to be brain food. It can be comfort food. But what's a something, a book, a television show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? Always and forever, Melissa Clark's feta brined roast chicken is like the best thing you can make. It's You have to start it the night before. You make a brine out of feta and water. You soak the chicken in that overnight. You let it air dry for an hour or more so that the skin will then crisp up really well. You do a rub of lemon and oregano and stuff it full of lemons. You roast that sucker and then you do a sauce with a little bit more feta and serve it over a bed of arugula. Man, it's the best. Okay, well, that gives us our uh, marching orders on that. But, Maren, uh, so great to talk with you. Always great to spend time with you. Thanks so much for your time today. Zach, this is really fun. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for making an easy conversation. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.